0: Hmm? Ah! Hmm. Oh. you boys and girls out there in podcast land? It's great to be back in the good old US of A after an amazing three-week romp throughout Europe. Now that I'm back home, you can expect the schedule to start heading back to normal in the next week or so. But I still have some special zingers I wanted to share with you, and today is no exception. Be sure to stick around after the credits as Brandon addresses the question... Why is it that directors seem to get credited for work that seems naturally associated with other artists on a film? I think you'll appreciate his answer. As usual, I want to give a huge thanks to our sponsor, Muse Storytelling by Still Motion. This is the patent-pinning process they've used to tell amazing real-life stories, stories that have taken them from shooting weddings in Canada to shooting the Super Bowl and telling stories for Fortune 500 companies around the globe. Go to LearnStory.org to learn more. And be sure to use the offer code RADIO and save $47 off lifetime access. We thank Muse Storytelling
1: for their support. Scene one, take 10. Action. When you study the minutiae of it, uh, the stuff that isn't as sexy, you start finding that's where the real tricks are. That's really where the mastery is.
0: In all my years of interviewing filmmakers photographers and other creative artists one pattern i've recognized in the ones that do truly remarkable work is a seemingly insatiable need to analyze in excruciating detail the work of the masters in their craft you may recall the spoken word artist marshall davis jones on this podcast sharing how he collected two to three thousand voice notes on various actors and performers renowned for the quality of their voice Two, as he put it solved the puzzle of what made their vocal quality so amazing. Film Riot host and filmmaker Ryan Connolly share how he devoured tons of Fincher, Hitchcock, Spielberg, and other filmmakers' films to see what makes their work tick. Comedians will study the jokes and stage performances of comic legends like Jerry Seinfeld, Eddie Murphy, Richard Pryor, Steve Martin, and others to learn what made those guys great. Well, I recently had an interview with friend of the show and frequent guest Brandon McCormick, the atlanta based filmmaker of Whitestone Motion Pictures. If you haven't already taken the time to check out Whitestone's work, from the visuals, to the production design, to the original music by Whitestone producing partner Nick Kirk, please do so. I promise it'll be a treat. Anyway, during this recent interview, the conversation started with a research project Brandon was telling me about. One where he had started to gather screenshots from dozens of movies by world-class directors. Not only was he collecting these screenshots, but he was tagging them and adding all kinds of cross-referencing metadata. The result is a database and a wealth of knowledge about focal length, shot selection, editing decisions, storytelling, and some surprising revelations you would never have guessed about master filmmakers. And as is often the case on this show, what started out essentially as a tangential side note transformed into an engaging conversation and a full-blown episode. I'm Ron Dawson, and this is Radio Film School Short Ends.
1: I've been doing some research. I kind of upped my game on research and film stuff recently. And um, I, I, what I started to do is I started to take high-resolution screenshots of films um, to figure out how to shoot like inserts and like mm-hmm. the boring, like the non sexy stuff, you know, like dialogue, three people dialogue scene at a table kind of thing, and um, so I was just taking a few hundred screenshots, and then I started tagging them and metadata, you know, what two thirty five, thirty five millimeter lens looks like, and I was just trying to figure out why does my stuff not look like, you know, I I, I shoot. On the Red Epic and Fincher shoots on the Red Epic, right? So I'm, you guys sh- should look, look like, like his, it. right? Yeah, like the, I have no reason, like there's no real excuse to not. Um, so I started doing it, and it kind of got out of hand, and now I have eight thousand eight hundred screenshots, all metadata and tagged, That's and crazy. probably forty movies, and. What happens is, that and are, are these Sorry, are like behind-the-scenes sh- shots type? No, stuff? No, no, no. These are these are yeah. screenshots of the film. Oh, the actual film. Um, Got it. Yeah. So, like, I'm looking at it going. Okay, what is you know shot for shot? How does Spielberg shoot a dialogue scene at a table during the day inside with windows in the background, like just like that level of specificity? Um, and then what I started to realize was I could then cross-reference and say, okay, I want all interior dialogue scenes. In kitchens, and I pull up over like you know thirty, forty different movies, and man, the trends that start emerging, uh, the things that I'm noticing that I just have never seen before is like Like, staggering. Well, one of them is you know I don't know if you you probably know this, but I just kind of learned recently about like um, just by doing this is the amount of winners that Spielberg puts in his movies. is What's a winner? Oh, all one shot. So Uh he's shooting a scene. So normally we're used to like winners like. um, uh, like children of men, Alfonso Karan. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like one long, cri- oh, burn, one long take. take. Right, right, one right. long take. Spielberg is the master of the secret oneer. Uh most of his scenes are done in one setup, maybe two. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of like staggering how he how he builds the scene going from like an insert to a wide to a medium, all in one shot. Then I started noticing that actually other people copy him like P. T. Anderson. So and then I'm like, oh, wow, like P.T. Anderson does the exact same thing as Spielberg. You know, there's, there are exact um, copies of, of styles of shots in There Will Be Blood that are in Jurassic Park. Uh, and then I go back and look at Hitchcock and you like, oh, crap, H- uh, uh, Spielberg's copying Hitchcock because Hitchcock did this scene in Psycho in two setups. And, but it's like five stagings, like crazy, like really detailed, like, oh, wow, every single scene has two lamps in it, like period. Every scene has two lamps in it. Like, the, no exception. And so, I was like, wow. So, like, as I'm directing this thing recently, I'm like, well, I need, I need two lamps in every shot. And, uh, you know, you look at it and go, hey, it's a little closer. Um, and, you know, wide lenses, everybody shoots. Um, I rarely see anything um, closer than a 50 or, I'm sorry, 35. I would say 75% of movies are shot on a wide lens closer up. Why hasn't, like, a DP come to me and say, hey, let's shoot this on a 14? Other than the fact that I'd be like, you're crazy. Uh, Let's not. Um, But I don't know. There's when you have eight thousand images from films that are like cross-referenced. Like these these patterns emerge that are just like blowing my mind. I have ten gigs of still images right now. Wow. That I can you can go through and you know I can say I want every picture that Roger Deakins has shot of a close-up of a photograph with a hand in it. Like I can get to that specificity and all of those will show up and go, Oh, that's the pattern. He shoots them all from, you know, this finger to this finger on a, on a 25 millimeter. Like it looked and felt considerably better, like a, like a movie. And there's these weird intrinsic things that these guys do that I've not, that's not in the cinematography book. You know, it's not in the the things that we, we look at because it's a weird specificity. Um, And it's just crazy. I mean, it's just, I don't know. It's cool. I, I've shot my last short on it, and I'm about to shoot another one in uh, three weeks, and I'm going to do the same thing. And I'm, I'm confident side by side, uh, I'll be able to tell a significant difference. And for the rest of us, I think it's just like, wow, that looks more like a movie. It just looks right. It doesn't look small or, or um, you know, I couldn't shoot woods. Every time I went out to shoot woods, I'm like, these look freaking small, and I'm like, I'll go wide angle at 25, you know, millimeter lens, and it still looks small. I put an eight on there and I was like, son of a gun, this looks awesome. Wow. And then you go to watch Revenant, and I did find the on Revenant, they said they shot everything on a uh twenty five was the closest they went. They shot the majority of it on a on a sixteen or a fourteen. And you could tell, I mean, if you watch the movie, now that I know what I'm looking at, I'm like, Yeah, the whole thing's freaking wide angle. Wow. And I got that in an interview, I'm like, I knew it. I just I freaking knew it. So yeah, it's crazy. So now if someone to say, if you could pick one lens to shoot a movie, what would it be? Uh, a few months ago, I would said 35 millimeter. Give me my 35, I can shoot a whole movie. Hmm. And I, would, I think now that's stupid. I would be like, give me a 14. Huh? Give me a 14, I can shoot a whole movie and it'll look great. Wow. Yeah, it's weird. Anyway, only a few people like care <laughs> you know, about that. So I like to share it with people who I, I think would like, you know, give a damn.
0: Well, that's really interesting because it it, it it speaks to the and this is a topic we've covered on the show the idea of emulating the masters and or emulating other filmmakers and, and like you've taken it to like an nth degree where you've done this really painstaking analysis of all these films and how they've been shot to the point where you even have deduced what lenses they're using whether or not you hear it in
1: an interview. So for me, it was uh, I could do the sexy shots. I know the big boom final shot i mean i know how to do this sexy that's what we all get i don't know how to shoot uh, or i've never stopped to think how do i shoot an insert of a hand picking up a book you know like i've never stopped to think about that i just shoot an insert and there's a there's a way to shoot it and when you start seeing trends their style everyone has their style i can tell you now what spielberg's camera is spielberg's camera is like um uh, uh, Spielberg's camera is ahead of the action it 's telling it knows what 's going to happen before it happens, and so he telegraphs everything with the camera uh, Fincher is like the un uh unloving uncaring god It just it is just sits there and it observes um, it, you know when you go to like Alphonse Cuaron or even emmanuel Levensky um, the camera's behind the action it 's trying to figure out what the hell 's going on just like you um, wow. and all of a sudden and now I understand you know sixteen by nine format versus two thirty five like Why other than, oh, well, 235 looks better. You know, it looks like a movie. Um, And I found out half of Spielberg's movies were were 16 by 9. I had no idea. I just didn't pay attention to it. Um, Anyway, that's, yeah. It's just, I mean, I could just, there's so much stuff. And I feel like when you study study the minutia of it, uh, the stuff that isn't as sexy, you start finding that's where the real tricks are. That's really where the mastery is. uh, And that's kind of where... That's just the level of, of and then you see trends across directors. Say, so, okay, these are staples. Like this is just this isn't even just a style thing. This is a this is a movie thing. This is how these look, and we're used to that. Um, and of course, you don't have to copy it. But I mean, and then all of a sudden, now I have great production design. If I type in abandoned house, I have thirty different options I can send to my production designer and say, hey, I like this one. I don't like this one, um, just because I have I just have <laughs> eight thousand. Uh, and eight hundred images to choose from, from all of my favorite movies, and you know, even some ones that I don't super love. But and then the other byproduct is I'm watching movies scene by scene four mm-hmm. times each, and I'm like, oh crap, this scene's actually really brilliant. Uh, and I, you know, there's another unintended benefit.
0: Well, what's interesting is uh, everything you just said, you started out saying how, like, you shoot with an epic and how um, Fincher shoots with an epic, so how come your stuff doesn't look like Fincher's? And, you know, I'm always saying at the end of my show if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with. Mm-hmm. But um which speaks more to, like, the actual story and creating something that actually speaks to people. Mm-hmm. But even if you take it to the technical side and if you go back to, okay, um... Just having the same equipment is not enough. Like it's knowing what to do with it, how to move it, where to put it, and yeah, there's that aspect of storytelling that goes beyond just having, you know, the cool equipment. It's is uh, you know, it's one thing to have a hammer. It's another thing to know that it's supposed to be used to hammer nails versus stir right. coffee or something. I don't know. That's a stupid analogy, but uh, you know, <laughs> it works. It works
1: <laughs> well, and then too, and then you start realizing, okay, this is how this is how you tell. The scene. I mean, really, you're talking about when you're talking about directing, it's what you show and what you don't show. And so that's a big part of our job is to tell the story via the camera. And in in, so there's a technical, obviously, uh, you know, exposures and f stops and all that kind of stuff that does matter. But I'm more interested in the framing of, okay, why? Why does Fincher use a two shot or a dirty OTS instead of a medium? And why does he when does he go to a close up? And when is he comfortable leaving it wide? And because uh, I'm looking at a scene, I'm like, I would compulsively shoot, you know, medium, medium, close, OTS, right? I mean, that's kind of the and mm-hmm. master. Right. And I'm looking at some of these going, no, they don't ever approach it that way. They, they, And it's different for each scene. So I'm like, okay, this is an emotional scene. Why is one character shot in a medium and why is the other one shot in a close, the mm-hmm. entire scene? Like, that's on purpose. That's not an accident. Uh, my two characters would look the same size, really, you know? Uh, but, but these guys shot it. And then I'm like, well, could this character is being chewed out. And every time there's a dominant character, they're, they're in a medium. And the person who's getting um, chewed out or, or is receiving that um, anger, I guess, is closer. And so I'm like, okay, all right. So now – and then it helps you. Like, can I do the scene with less words? Do I need these beats? Because he did it. He did this same kind of emotional scene in two shots. Um, and there wasn't a compulsion to show; it was more about the body language, and really, and that's our job: show, don't tell. Uh, and it just—it's—it's it's brushing up on the literacy of the visual storytelling, um, because I think as much as we're in charge of the story, uh, there's a reason we're called storytellers. That is um, just as important as the story itself, in my you know opinion, when it comes to film. And uh, and then you obviously study the scenes from a story aspect as well. Um, and see and performances how they work and how great performances when you're looking at every frame you're seeing oh crap man that's a great performance and that was just done in a, a, a you know a twitch of the eye or a glance to the to a shot where they cut away to a close-up and uh right in that moment on that line and i understand now why and how that changes the whole scene and, and honestly with today's 4k 6k
0: 8k films you can shoot wide and still get a close-up if you <laughs>
1: Yeah, and I think depending yeah, on what the final final delivery is, and you know, there's another. This is a whole other thing, but the there is something I'm I'm now trying to figure out from a technical standpoint of what's important and what's not, and so there are a lot of there are a lot of errors, I guess you would say, in films. Um, you know, bumpy dollies and weird, weird, uh, uh, you know, inconsistencies maybe in lighting, um, in just the best movies. And the directors go, you know what? I know what's important about this scene. And I would shoot a scene probably 10 times to technically get it right, you know? And obviously I know that's not like a great thing, but I can, I look at Spielberg, he comes in on time and on budget every time. And I now know how he does it. He shoots these wonners, They're amazing. They're well-performed. And it. if there's a bump in a dolly halfway through, it doesn't matter. Hmm. You know, if I said, okay, you know how many, you know how Catch me if you can, how many bumpy dollies there are in that movie. A, it, it, like, there's a, a sinful amount. Now, <laughs> I, nobody knows that. I wouldn't have said it or thought it until you watch it. But I feel like then I'm the only one on set as a director who can say, you know what, that's, that's a good take based on the criteria that I know is important. Um, and so, because everyone else is looking at their thing, the dolly grips are looking at their, their move, um, you know, the DP is looking at his lights. And he can come to you and say, look, this light wasn't right or whatever. It's only I'm the only one that can make the decision. That's not important. What's important was that performance and we killed it. Or what's it, the audience will be looking to the right of the frame, not the left. Um, and uh, what um, uh, Hitchcock would call, you know, fridge, fridge logic, you know, things <laughs> that you wouldn't really notice until you're you're know, standing in front of the fridge later and go, wait a minute, um, <laughs> you know and just knowing well this is this is not something that will take the audience out and this is something that will take the audience out and I think technically and performance and story wise those things matter and uh, just kind of realizing that I'm the only one that can say that's not important that is important um, and looking at w- what other filmmakers value what is Spielberg and, and uh, all these other guys say yep that's important that's not important move on or use that take you know, I would never use a take with a bumpy dolly oh my gosh like what a sin Uh, And he's he's okay with it. If it's a better take, use it. Directing is compromised, right? And so it's like, well, we can get this shot, but we can't get these other two shots. Well, the one shot's really cool, and it's like my movie poster shot. Uh, And the other one isn't, uh, but they're they're really important story shots, Uh, or vice versa. I I was on Stone Diaries and I shot one shot. It was on a hill and it was this big crane shot at sunset. And I and we I mean we scheduled the crap out of that freaking movie to shoot it. It was it was the insane. But when you have 150 people on set, you can move quick. And um, and so I'm shooting the scene. And I'm like, this doesn't feel right. Sunset's too pretty. The scene's dark and depressing, and the sunset looks too pretty. So I think we gotta wait till dusk, and which means I had to push other shots. But they were, it cost us money. I mean, it cost. It was actually a much bigger deal than I expected it to be. To just to move one shoot, like oh we'll shoot that later. Well, you know, we brought in people extra early to do makeup, and now we're paying OT and blah blah blah. blah. And um, but I was insistent saying, look, but I think this is like. This is the poster shot. This is the this is on the trailer, you know, and I spent the extra time to get it right, and you know, History Channel edit it into the into the trailer, and uh, and that was, I I had to you know sometimes you got to talk to the producers to say I I believe in this, um, and then other times like look uh, it's not that important you know we can we can move on, it's not what I wanted, and that's going to be that's that's the way that them's the breaks kind of thing, um, and knowing. I think some directors are like, no, this is every shot is super important. And I think that's how you lose trust with producers um, and lose trust with uh, your AD um, because they don't see you actually making compromises and uh, understanding. And that means you just don't have a grasp, I think, of, of what you're doing in some ways because if everything's precious, <laughs> nothing's precious. you know.
0: Oh, uh, that's interesting.
1: You can't engage yeah. uh, your crew. When you say, I'm putting my foot down, we got to do this. I want my crew to go, well, he knows what he's talking about. He, he knows that's important versus like, no, we're doing everything. My work, my, uh, you know, the craft, every single shot is is, is super important. And, and it's, I mean, it's just fundamentally not. Like you're saying, it's just not. And, and when people watch your edit and they go, oh, you cut that shot. Or, wow, that was two seconds. Well, you're saying, that was two seconds of the movie. And you look at how much you spent on that. Um, (laughs) right that was kind of a waste uh you keep doing that and no one i mean you lose trust i mean you lose trust with your when you're trying to push people on set and again really producers producing uh in my world and producing with the producers is is just as much as part of the art uh as as the rest of it because i want to make another one (laughs) so it means i got to come in on schedule and on budget and prove that i can do it and do it well and um you know anyway so if we can get the technical stuff out of the way, then I can I can spend more time on the acting and the story because yeah. I know the technical stuff looks great and I'm not sitting around screwing with the thing going, how do I make this look big? You know, because that was my, that's always my thing. Well, I'll move the camera away. No, that doesn't work. Uh, okay, let's, let's shift this way. What about a lower angle? Now that doesn't work. As opposed to walking and going, okay, a 14 millimeter low looking up is going to, that's it. That's the shot. Right. And now let's worry about the performance. Uh, it's just different, you know, and yeah. that's the job, I think. So anyway, it's the less sexy part. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's the less uh, ethereal, cool part. But I think it's a huge part nonetheless. Yeah. And it all kind of ties in. You know, our, our job is also practical. We have to come in on time and on budget. Um, and so you have to be able to look at things and, and find the compromise in that. Which sounds terrible. I hate like, I hate the idea that I would go, oh, that's good enough. Or, hey, we'll fix that in post. But um, it, it sounds like sacrilege. But I'm noticing what the other guys value and it's different than my priorities and maybe I should ch- change my priorities
0: Don't forget to hang out after the credits for a bonus segment about the collaboration and the role of directors Radio Film School is a production of Dare Dreamer FM This episode was written and produced by me Chris Husledge is the show's co-producer Music was curated from freemusicarchive.org. Check out the show notes for link to music tracks. Muse Storytelling by Stillmotion is the sponsor for the show, and what a perfect partner they are. You know that I'm all about the story, and that is just what Muse is about as well. Whether you're shooting a wedding, producing a corporate video, or making a documentary, a good story is essential, and Muse Storytelling will help you find and tell that story. Go to LearnStory.org and use the offer code RADIO to save $47 off lifetime access to Muse. You can follow me on Twitter at DareDreamerFM, and you can follow the show at Radio Film School. And you know what would really help the show out. You know it's coming. Just hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Now, I know I say this every week, and it probably goes in one year and out the other. But in all seriousness, if you would do this for me, it would be a huge, huge help for the show. That's it for now. Remember, if the story sucks, I don't care what lens you shot it with. Until next time, adios. When you were commenting about like the choices that uh that Spielberg makes or the these all these directors who've been studying that the choices that they make, it brought up maybe it reminded me of something that I've always thought about. Whenever I hear people particularly like on podcasts, like uh movie review podcasts, they'll comment on, you know, uh, something about the movie and they'll give all this uh, credit to the director for that thing. And oftentimes it feels like the kind of thing that they're crediting is something that should credit the writer. Like they're talking about some aspect of the story. Like I love the way that you know, so-and-so did this in and, and the movie and and how it just – and it sounds like, wow, that sounds like something that was written before it was actually shot, right? Mm-hmm. And even you talking about Spielberg's use of The Wonders and going from a medium to a close-up and back and forth. Yeah, he shot that, but who's to say it wasn't the editor who decided to use it then? And, and, and I'm sure Spielberg is sitting in an editing session and ob- obviously sure. – in a lot of cases the director is but just quickly i mean your thoughts on that on where there's credit given to the director for almost stuff that could easily be credit to the cinematographer or to the mm-hmm. editor or to the writer like is it just easy easier to credit the director because he's the person behind the helm um because he or she is the visionary behind it it's just sometimes when i hear these kind of comments it feels like wow like like I know, the director was the one who either who shot the shot or whatever, and unless he's also the writer, and Spielberg, so far as I know, doesn't write any of his stuff.
1: Right, he's in on the story aspect, but not the actual screenplay.
0: Right, right. Um, then, um, is there undue credit given to directors in these kind of comments? I, your I, your you know, thought. Yeah, maybe you're biased because you're a director, but <laughs> yeah, we're like,
1: well, I think they're, they're in charge of everything and they are the gods of movie. No, uh, well, I mean, it, the same thing happens though with actors. If you think about it, you know, I'm gonna go see the new Brad Pitt movie, like, well, I mean, he acted in it, you know, like, or the new Tom Cruise, I mean, those are bad examples because, right, like as well, but, right. um, you know, it's the new uh, uh Jennifer Lawrence film, they're like, well, yeah, and Bradley Cooper, yeah, well, actually, that's I mean, they didn't like make the movie, they're in it. Most people will just kind of pick something that they can, you know, get their heads around. At the same point, though, I mean, from a director standpoint, I also feel like my job is to get the best people there. And then when they say like directing is 90% casting, I actually get that mm-hmm. um, because I've got to make sure my roles are filled with the best actors and the right actors for the roles. And when they get there, their job is to just be great. And then my job is just to facilitate. I'm a midwife. You know, I'm just, I'm letting, I'm just helping the creative process get born into something. Um, and, you know, because sometimes, yeah, some, directors may not even care about the cinematography is hey, you make the thing look good i'm just gonna worry about the performances and then you know deacons will shoot this amazing shot and like oh wow this director is like ah, it's deacons is the master um i think i think there is definite uh undue credit in a lot of ways i think the way i kind of look at it is the director is the high risk high reward job because if the movie sucks it's his fault too and so he could be a great director. Correct. And if the writing I mean, Fincher. Let's talk about Fincher and the Aliens Three. And so he would I mean he's a great director, but he was like the studio and this and the writing and the script. And it's kind of, you know, it's a not great movie. And but it's a David Fincher film. And no one else is getting the heat as much uh, as as he's got to carry that. Wasn't uh, that his
0: was that his first feature?
1: Yes, that that's was his I first thought. feature out right. of out of stuff. And I mean that's kind of where he learned a lot of his lessons. And so, but you know, he gets he gets the credit for the for the bad stuff too. And right. so, uh, and I think people who know the important people who know that's that's kind of what's important. So you know, cinematography wise, the other great cinematographers will get it. The costume sure. designers, you know, they'll know well that designer is great. And me as a director, I know that man that, that you know that music was. Phenomenal! I had nothing to do with the, the score that Nick writes; it's incredible. Right? I'm here just to say I like this direction. Like you know, it needs to be kind of this. And even then, he'll be like, "Well, what about this?" And it's different than what I thought, and it's even better. Um, and I can easily say, "Well, that's that's the credit to Nick." But I mean, at the end of the day, my name comes up first at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my job is to make sure I have a Nick Kirk working on it, and I have a great designer and a Dan Iconic costuming. Like that's my job is to get. If you're the smartest guy in the room, you're doing it wrong. Right. If you're the most talented person at your production meeting, you're failing as a director because you should be bringing in better people and saying, what do you think? You tell me. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's undue credit. There's undue credit all around. And I think um, uh, you know, I think that's just part of the gig. And I think as long as, as people who know know, uh, that matters. Um, But because, I mean, the majority of the populace doesn't know uh, the director of, uh, you know, Prisoner of Azkaban was the same director of Gravity. I don't know. I don't care. You know, it's like it's a George Clooney movie. It's a George Clooney, Sandra Bullock space thing. Right. You know, I would say the majority of people really don't care that Interstellar was the guy who did Batman um, or Dark Knight. Mm -hmm. It just uh, doesn't matter to them. It's just uh, one's a Christian build, but this is the Batman movie and it's the uh, the one where... Uh, Matthew you know, McConaughey goes to space. Yeah, he goes to space, and it's a cool one. McConaughey, it's a kind of his, the space movie. And so, you know, and I think directors have to be cool with that. I mm. think, and I think we're all, it's the unsung heroes of all of it. But, you know, who does matter, and who does care, is, uh, you know, Mr. Warner Brothers. Um, you know, they, they care. I mean, right. they that company goes, hey, he's the guy. Uh, you know, who else cares is the Academy. You know, and like, there are, and the guy who hires you for the next project he really cares um, and at the end of the day, crassly that's kind of what's important at the top of the list and um, yeah I guess that's kind of the long way of saying I mm. think so, I think there's undue credit all around but it's a team, uh, you know filmmaking is the most collaborative art form in history it mm. has every single um, discipline of art from writing to painting and designing and sculpting and uh, color theory and performance and Thespians and uh light and how light interacts with photography and film and design costume i mean go down the list I, I, you know and then the technical and the organization and the, the leading the troops and uh, uh it's it's it embodies every discipline uh so there's no way to take credit for anything really because everyone has to we all live and die by this thing um so i think it's kind of silly to say I mean, I, and I get, I think it's more of an advertising ploy to say, oh, this is an M. Night movie. But, you know, obviously M. Night by himself is not out there making this movie, clearly. Um, and it's the people that his team, Spielberg has the same team because that's phenomenal. Uh, that's he, he knows what works. That's, I mean, if you have Tom Hanks, you use Tom Hanks in all your movies. Okay. I mean, that's fine. You know, that's his thing. Um, you know, and I think, uh, I mean, I think that's kind of the part of the process uh, of filmmaking as a whole. It's funny you mentioned, like, you know, kind of alluded to using the name that's going to
0: get people in, and I'm still waiting for the the movie that has from the guy who was the grip on the Revenant, comes. right?
1: Yeah, <laughs> right. From the ad that gave you six cents, right? right. Um, but those guys are incredible. You look oh, at of what an ad does, and I, I mean, we we, you know, you look down and go, okay. You pull up his credits. I, we talked to the AD from Six Sense and a bunch of M. Night stuff, mm-hmm. and the credits are, are staggering. I mean, their IMDb is just is incredible. So, yeah, I mean, but, you know, nobody cares. You know, it's that kind of, oh, Mel Gibson's in it, so we're going to go watch it.